Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the River Community Church podcast. If you want more information about the church or things that are going on, you can visit therivercc.com or you can check out our app at app.therivercc.com. This week's message comes from Pastor Brian Vaughn. The, uh, the place we're starting this morning is this, that God cares about the outsider, the outcast, and the marginalized. God cares about the outsider, the outcast, and the marginalized. And uh, if you're here with us, you have the opportunity to grab one of those, uh, uh, we call them listening guides. There's some announcements on one side, and on one side, there's an opportunity to kind of track with what we're talking about. Uh, or if you're watching online, thanks for joining us. Uh, you can use the app, or if you're here, you can use the app to, to track along with us. But this is the truth we're starting with that God cares about the outsider, the outcast, and the marginalized. And I would venture to say that probably most of us in this room or listening online right now have at one time in our lives felt like an outsider or an outcast or maybe even pushed to the side, to the margins. Anybody ever felt that way? Yeah. And it may have been because of the family we grew up in or where we found ourselves from. It could have been because of something that that we'd done in our past. It it could be just because people are mean (laughs) and don't care for each other really well, right? But we've all probably found ourselves there feeling like an outsider or an outcast or pushed to the sides, uh, marginalized. And that's the truth we want to start with this morning. To get to where we want to go, we're going to start in Luke chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there, that would be great. Uh, And some of you might be saying, but wait, we're not supposed to be in the New Testament yet. Uh, if you, if, if you haven't been here, uh, or if it's been a long time since you've been here, we've been reading through the Bible together and we started in January. We're going straight through and we're somewhere around second Kings and second Chronicles. And some of the prophets are all thrown, thrown in there. Uh, and so it's weird that we're starting, starting with Jesus, but there's a reason why you'll see in a minute. But in Luke chapter four, just to give you a little bit of context of what's going on, Jesus has walked into kind of his public ministry. He had gone uh, by the Jordan River and there was a guy named John the Baptist and he had gone to John and said, hey, I want you to baptize me. And John was like, no, you ought to be baptized. And he's like, no, this is, this is right. I need you to do this. So in the Jordan River, John baptized him. And in that moment, the, the spirit of the Lord descended like a dove, it said, and then a voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I, with whom I am well pleased. And in that moment, we see the trend, we see, we see God. We see that God has come to earth. And through Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And immediately following that, he said the spirit led him into the wilderness. And and for 40 days and nights, he fasted. And then the the devil says Satan came and and, and tempted him. And, And Jesus stood against all of that temptation as he used the word of God and and allowed in his own spirit, the spirit of God worked through him in that moment. 
And apparently he'd already been traveling around a little bit. He had been in a place called Capernaum and he had done some miracles and had been teaching. And then he ends up in the context of this, uh, he's back in Nazareth, which is the town where, where Jesus grew up. Once he, once he was born and physically came to earth, he, he grew up in a town called Nazareth. And he's in the synagogue that day. The synagogue is the, the local place of worship for the, for the Jews. And he's already, he must already be recognized as a teacher because they hand him the scroll, a scroll and said, hey, if you want to say a few words. It says he opened up the scroll. He had the scroll of Isaiah. He'd opened up for what us, it would be Isaiah 61. And he read these words, said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And I, I love the scene. And if, if you've been here for a while, I've talked about this before, because I think it's such a pivotal uh, chapter in understanding the reason that Jesus is here. But he's saying and identifying in that moment that I am the one that the prophet Isaiah talked about some 700 years before and said, it's here. The time, the, the year of the Lord's favor is here because, because I'm here and I'm coming to make all things right. And so people were excited, you know, to some, they were like, whoa, they were amazed. And starting in verse 22 uh, here, it says, everyone spoke well. This is Luke 4, 22. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. And it could be the, the way that he said it, or it could be this message is what they were amazed of, this message of grace, this message of hope. And for some of them sitting in that room, it probably didn't quite match what they were hoping for in the one who would come and set Israel free. And what they were thinking of is this king that's going to write in, set them free from their oppressors, who were the Romans at that time. But Jesus is, is preaching kind of a different message. He didn't, he didn't say, hey, I'm coming. I'm gonna, we're gonna, y'all get your horses together. We're gonna ride into Rome and we're gonna take this thing over. No, that wasn't what he was saying. But they were amazed in that moment at his gracious words. And then they said, how, how can this be? Or how can these words be coming from this guy? This is Jesus. This is, this is Joseph's son. This is Mary's son. Like we know him. We've grown up around him. How can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? And then Jesus kind of perceiving the thoughts, hearing that kind of question, hearing that murmur, murmuring going around and maybe even perceiving their hearts. He's like, you'll undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Meaning, do the miracles here in your hometown like those you've done in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. He's starting to ruffle some feathers a little bit. Like, wait, Jesus, what are you, what are you implying here? Saying that a prophet's not, not welcome in his own hometown. Are you identifying yourself as somebody? What, what's going on? And then he goes on. He says, certainly there were many needy is, widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Okay, he's calling up one of, one of the prophets, some, someone that they really, really looked up to, Elijah. In Elijah's time, when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner or an outsider, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. It's kind of weird here. 
He's just sat down. He's kind of announced in his hometown that the year of the Lord's favor here, this is amazing. And, and they're like questioning, like, well, can this really be? Who is, I mean, this is Joseph's son. And he's like, brings up Elijah and this widow that was from Sidon and, and then Naaman. What, what's going on here? Well, apparently it struck a nerve. When they heard this, verse 28, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. I'd love to see this scene, right? I'm seeing it like, like I see a movie. And, and they're, they're there, they're teaching, they're in the synagogue, and it's like the, the, the tension and the intensity is raising, rising, right? And then all of a sudden, he says these things, and they became furious, and they mob him. They're like rushing him out, get to the cliff. They're going to try to push him off, and somehow he just slips away. But here's the question you have to ask when you read this. Why were they so furious? It wasn't like he looked at them and said, you sinners, you're all going to die. You know, that's, that's not what he said. He just mentioned Elijah and Elisha and this widow and Naaman. So let's go back and look at that, what's going on in those references. We're not going to talk about Elijah and the widow. That was from our reading a couple weeks ago. But in our reading this week, we actually read, if you're tracking with us, we actually read about Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. So let's go there to see what's going on. Now, to give you a little context of the timeline, if you were here last week, if you watched uh, online, we had some timelines, right? And we had talked about how the kingdom had divided. The kingdom of Israel divided into two kingdoms, and there was a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom, Rehoboam, let's see if you were listening last week. King Rehoboam, was he southern kingdom or northern kingdom? Southern kingdom, that's right. And who was, who was, over, who was over the northern kingdom? Jeroboam. Jeroboam. Man, you guys did really well. Thank you. At least somebody listened. To, or you just read it for yourself and you're really smart. So, but that's, that's right. So the kingdom is split, right? And so we, we, we're tracking with two different kingdoms, all descended from the family of Abraham. And you have the southern kingdom, and you have the northern kingdom. Northern kingdom, almost all those dudes were evil. The, the kings that came to reign, uh, pretty much they all were. And in the southern kingdom, the majority were evil, but there were some bright spots. We talked about a couple of those bright spots last week. But to give you context of where, uh, where Naaman and Elisha fall, the story we're going to look at, it's somewhere around the time of King Joram in Israel. And Elijah mostly ministered in that northern kingdom, okay? So that just gives you a little bit of a timeline. Uh, so jumping in to 2 Kings chapter 5. The king of Aram had great admira admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But, through Naaman, but though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. Okay, it starts off, the king of Aram, is that Israel? It's not, okay? So that's what we're, so we're dealing with non-Israelites. And he had a commander of his army whom he really cared about. His name was Naaman. And it tells us that he was a mighty warrior, but he had leprosy. Now for them in that day, leprosy, and this could be any kind of contagious skin disease, but if, you, if we're talking about leprosy, 
they were talking about something that he wasn't going to, the doctors weren't going to help him get better. They just didn't know how to treat it. They didn't know what to do with it. It typically was and it's something that they lived with until finally they died. And so it was a big deal. Big deal that he, that he had leprosy, but the, the king really valued Naaman as the commander of his army. Now, for Israel, they would have considered, especially during this time, we'll see it in a minute, that, that Aram, the nation of Aram, they were enemies. At times, they were allies, but most of the time, they were enemies. So at the time, going on, verse 2, at this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel. So, yep, enemies right there. And among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. And one day the girl said to her mistress, I wish that my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. Samaria at this time has become the capital of Israel. Okay, so that's Israel. I wish that my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria or in Israel that he would, and he would heal him of his leprosy. A couple of things going on there. One, this is an Israelite young lady. And she says, hey, I know that there's this man of God. There's a prophet in Samaria. That if, if my master, if Naaman would just go to him, perhaps he might find healing. So she had, she had hope kind of in, in who Elisha was and in who the nation of Israel was supposed to be. And Naaman and his wife must have treated her fairly well because she's caring for his well-being which is really interesting. Or maybe she's just really walking with God and realizes that whether she's treated poorly or, or mi- and mistreated or if she's treated kindly, she's still to be the people of God. She's still to be someone who is loving and is kind and filled with grace. But regardless of whatever the reason, she says, hey, he should go check out Elisha. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram, told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out, carrying his gifts, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, with this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. So this king says, great idea, go, I'll send a letter with you. Present yourself to the king of Israel, and apparently King Joram and see if they can help you. And so he does. Now, he, when he's there before the king, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, am I a God that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. I don't know that that's the reaction that I would have had if I had received that letter, but that was his. Apparently he's paranoid, which, you know, they, the dude had just invaded him early before. But I think it's interesting that his first thought wasn't, hey, this guy is coming to Israel. The land and the people who follow the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and earth, and he thinks that maybe he can find healing here. That was not his reaction. His reaction was, they're trying to set me up here. I don't know what's going on. This is ridiculous. He's a king who's not walking in the ways of the Lord, but walking and doing what's right in his own eyes. But Elisha hears about what happened. 
when Elijah, the man of God, which that's a title, we don't have time to, to chase that down, but it's, it, that's how Elisha's um, identified there. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Like, you, this is ridiculous. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and waited at the door of Elijah's house. So he brought his entourage. They show up at Elisha's house, expecting that Elisha was like, oh, Naaman's here. Let's go out. Let's talk to him. But instead, he says, Elijah sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. Sounds pretty easy, right? Go to the Jordan River, wash yourself seven times, and you'll be healed. And I don't know about you, but I think, that's it? Like, that's all you want me to do? I mean, I guess I could do that, right? That's not how Naaman took it. But Naaman became, verse 11, became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the, the Abana and the Far Far better than any of the rivers here in Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned away and went away in a rage. Instead of hearing, wow, this is pretty easy. I'll go give anything a shot. Naaman's pride was so great. It's like, first, this dude didn't even come out and stand before me. He sent a messenger to me. Doesn't he know who I am? Two, our, betters, our, our, our rivers, Damascus, are far better than any of the rivers here, the Jordan River. Don't you know how dirty that is? Why would I watch in that? Why not go back to these? He's just filled with pride. But somebody had, was being reasonable. It says his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you certainly... So you should certainly obey when he simply says, go and wash and be cured. Like if, if, if Elijah had told you, okay, I want you to go find this highest mountain and you've got to climb up to the top and use everything that you've got to get up there. And then there's this flower growing there, right? And you got to pick it. And there's probably only going to be one because it's very rare. And once you pick it, you got to grind it up and then you spread it up, right? I think Naaman would have been like, yeah, I can do that. Come on, let's go. That's something I can do. But that's not what Elisha told him. He's like, go and wash yourself. And his officers are like, dude, just try this. They probably didn't say dude, but like, just try this. And so Naaman listens to reason. Says he went down to the Jordan River and he dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. And I love that. It wasn't just that he was healed, the wounds, they, they closed up, and you didn't see any, any evidence of it anymore. It's like, it, it's so much that he had the skin as a young child. Any of you wish you now had skin as a young child? Anyway, God healed him. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. And they stood before him and Naaman said, now I know that there is no God 
in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. Man, what a declaration. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Saying your God, Yahweh, is the only God there is. Elijah replied, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Like, no, I can't, I don't. It's not about me. This is God. You just declared there is no God except for the God of Israel. He's the one who healed you. Then Naaman said, all right, but, but please allow me to load, I love this, load two of my mules with earth from this place and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing, when my master, the king, when he goes into the temple of the God Rimon, 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 it doesn't matter, to worship, he's not real, uh, to worship there and leans, and he leans on my arm that I, would the Lord pardon me when I bow too? Elisha said, go in peace. So Naaman started home again. So he's like, I... Something amazing and holy has happened here. I want to take some of this dirt back with me. And so I could kind of spread it out and I'm going to build this offer and I'm going to offer sacrifices and offerings to the one true God. But hey, I'm still going to be in service of the king. And so when we go into that temple, just hear me. I'm not bound to his God. I'm just helping him out. And Elisha said, I get it. Naaman was an Arab man. He wasn't an Israelite. And as a non-Israelite or an outsider, he proclaimed and believed what Israel had not and was not at this time. He believed there's no God in all the world except Israel. But the kings of Israel, they were worshiping and running after other gods. The people of Israel were doing the same thing. But this non-Israelite, in making this proclamation, was saying, there is no God but the Lord. And here's the thing. As he was proclaiming this, Israel they were the ones supposed to be carrying this hope and this light. They were meant to be a light among the nations. They were the ones who, through their lives, through their words, their actions, through everything about them, that the nations should have been coming and saying, look, they should have been what this little Israelite girl in Naaman's home was, supposed, was doing. Like, hey, I know, I know a guy who serves a God that is so big that he can heal you. That's who Israel was supposed to be. They were meant to be a light among the nations. In fact, Isaiah later, uh, in kind of a few years past this, would say something similar in Isaiah 61 to 3. And it's actually the same context of the words that Jesus read in the synagogue back in Nazareth. Isaiah says this about 
Israel. It says, arise, Jerusalem, let your light shine for all to see, for the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. Darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth, but the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. All nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. Israel was supposed to be a picture of God's kingdom come. They were supposed to be proof by their lives that God's love and his grace extends beyond Abraham's family. That's who they were, Israelites. They were supposed to be proof by the way that they lived their lives that God cares about the outsider and the outcast and the marginalized. They were supposed to be the light of the world, the family and the people through whom the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven was coming into the world. That's who they were supposed to be. And when Jesus brings all this up back in Luke 4, in the synagogue, his words to them were an indictment. They were furious because he was challenging their norms. He was furious because he was saying, these outsiders, they understand the kingdom of God better than you do. They were furious because Israel's God, their God was rescuing the wrong people. Jesus, you as the, the, this is who you're saying you are, you're here to help us. Not everybody else. See, by Jesus' day, these, these religious leaders, they, they, had, they had distorted the word of God. This promise and the kingdom is not just for Abraham's family. It's not just for Israel. God's heart is for all people. Even though Jesus' words that day in Nazareth, in the synagogue, was an indictment on those religious leaders, his words for us was good news. Because we are the outsider the outcast, and the marginalized. That's who we are. Because I would venture to say that most of us listening and most of us sitting in this room are not of Israelite or Jewish descent, right? So that means that every single one of us would have been the outsider and the outcast. In Jesus' day. But through Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1. And here's a guy that was, he was a Jew, and later would, he, would, he would write and talk about how he was a Jew of Jew, like he even persecuted followers of Jesus. And he took the, the law very seriously and he had distorted it just like these religious leaders in Nazareth had. But then he had a, a miraculous and an amazing confrontation with Jesus. And Jesus transformed his heart and transformed his life. And so he writes in Ephesians chapter one, verse 12 and on, he says, God's purpose 
was that we Jews, so talking about himself and, and others, we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles, and Gentiles was the word that they used to explain anybody that wasn't an Israelite. So that's probably most of us. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, which he promised, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. He said, now you are adopted into this family. You're a part of this promise. And as a part of that promise, then like Israel, then we are supposed to be, or meant to be a light among the nations. Just as Israel was meant to be that. We are meant to be light among the nations. And this is how Jesus says it. This is who he says we're supposed to be in Matthew chapter five. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. He says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. See, that was God's hope for Israel, that they would be like that light, like a city on a hill that brings light and that, and that the, the world would be amazed by their good deeds. And Jesus says, as we've been adopted into this family, then you and I, we are meant to be light among the nations. We are meant to be the light of the world. And the more I think about this passage, especially recently as I've thought about it, there's something about light. It's not what light does. It's not that there's, you know, these lights, these lamps, they don't, they don't go out and they're, they're not following you around and, and illuminating things for you, right? They're just there. They're being what they are. Light just is, and it can't help but shine. The light, the, the fixture, it, it didn't learn how to shine. It didn't go to a class to learn how to be a light, right? It just is a light because that's what it's created to be. I think the same's for us. We are made to be light. And we either are or we aren't. So what does it look like to be light? Being light finds its source and its power from a transformed heart. Do you get that? Our light finds its source from a, a transformed heart. It's a transformed heart is, is one that's being broken and reshaped by the spirit of Christ in our lives. A transformed heart comes from sitting with Jesus and surrendering to him. 
and surrender to, to his work and his work of informing our identity and our words and our thoughts and our feelings and yes, our actions. So to be light means to be transformed. Paul writes about that elsewhere in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your hearts, the renewing of your minds. And when our hearts are transformed, then we just by very nature have to shine, have to be light among all people. But I think sometimes as Christians, we are the opposite of that. Sometimes we, we say we're a follower of Jesus. We say that we're a Christian. But then who we are, the thing that's coming out from us, doesn't look like light. Uh, there's a book called, it's called Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. He was a, a teacher, professor, theologian, philosopher. And this whole book is, is about what it looks like to be transformed and asking the, the spirit of Christ to, to just get into every single part of your life, every single part of your heart and transforming it. I would recommend it. It's a deep cut though. It's deep dive. It's, it's heavy stuff, but it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. And I want to read a portion and, and in this is towards the end of the book. And after he's talked about what it looks like to be transformed, talks about discipleship, talks about all these things. <laughs> he's trying to answer this question. And the question is this, why are those who, some of these people that, that, that talk about being Christian, why are they so mean? You ever met any mean Christians? You ever been one? Uh, we won't ask that. Um, but I wanted to read a little excerpt here. And you, this is some of it, he even writes, this might make you mad. Uh, or you may disagree with him, but I'm going to read it anyway. Let God do whatever he wants to do with it. Why are Christians so mean? Well, there, there's actually an answer to that question. And we must face this answer and effectively deal with it. Or Satan will sustain his stranglehold on spiritual transformation in local congregations or in local church. So Christians are routinely taught by example and word that it is more important to be right, always in terms of their beloved vessel or tradition or like maybe what you grew up in. So he says it's more important, they're taught that it's more important to be right than to be Christ-like. In fact, being right licenses you to be mean and indeed requires you to be mean. Righteously mean, of course, because he's being a little sarcastic. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to read that again. In fact, being right licenses you to be mean and indeed requires you to be mean. Righteously mean, of course. You must be hard on people who are wrong. And especially if they are in positions of Christian leadership. You say, even if you're, you're throwing darts at other, other believers, right? He said, they deserve nothing better. This is part of what I have elsewhere called the practice of condemnation engineering. Again, he's being sarcastic. <laughs> Now, I must say something you can be mad at me about. A fundamental mistake of the conservative side of the American church today and much of the Western church is that it takes as its basic goal to get as many people as possible ready to die and go to heaven. 
It aims to get people into heaven rather than get heaven into people. This, of course, requires that these people who are going to be in must be right on what is basic. You can't really quarrel with that, but it turns out that to be right on whatever is basic is to be right in terms of the particular church or tradition in question, not in terms of Christ's likeness. Now, the project thus understood and and practiced is self-defeating. It implodes upon itself because it creates groups of people who may be ready to die, but clearly are not ready to live. They rarely can get along with one another, much less those outside. Often their most intimate relations are tangles of reciprocal harm, coldness, and resentment. They have found ways of being Christian without being Christ-like. Ouch. As a result, they actually fall short of getting as many people as possible ready to die because the lives of the converted testify against the reality of the life that is life indeed or the life in Christ. The way to get as many people into heaven as you can is to get heaven into as many people as you can. That is to follow the path of genuine spiritual transformation or full throttle discipleship to Jesus When we are counting up results, we also need to keep in mind the multitudes of people, often surrounded by churches, who will not be in heaven because they have never, to their knowledge, seen the reality of Christ in a living human being. So you want to see people step into eternity, step into heaven, then show them what heaven looks like right now. And his indictment on us, I think, similar to Jesus' indictment on those people in Nazareth, well, you're not being the light of the world. Because you like to argue with each other. You like to post things that are really ugly. Or who you follow politically is more important than, than than the God that you follow. So my question for us this morning is, are we being who we were made to be? Are we being light? Jimmy's going to come up and and lead us in a song to to think about that for a moment. But I have a practice for us for this week. Something I'd love for you to do. And we started off by saying that God cares about the outsider, the outcast, and the marginalized. And I'd love for you this week to keep an eye out for the outsider, the outcast, or the marginalized. Where you work, where you play, might be somebody in your family. Keep an eye out for someone. And then be light. (laughs) Show them some, some kindness. Maybe invite them to, to, to go to lunch or to have coffee and just develop a relationship, get to know them. Now, here's what I'd say. Uh, don't say, hey, at, at my church this week, we talked about the outcast, outsider, and marginalized. And I think you are. So let's go have coffee and talk about that. I don't think that's the way to do it. <laughs> that is why I called you up here, Jimmy. Hey, would you like to get coffee this week? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But keep an eye out because that's who we are. 
We are the outsider, the outcast, the marginalized. And God cares about every single one of us. And talk to God about that relationship or that person. Ask him to show you how to be light, how to be Jesus in their life. But Jimmy now, and if you would, let's go ahead and stand. He's gonna lead us in a song. It's called None But Jesus. And as we're singing it, just begin to open up that question in your heart this morning. Am I light? If I call myself a follower of Jesus, then that's who I'm meant to be. Is that who I am? And also, just I want you to consider whether or not really you are following Jesus. You've said yes to that. So he's gonna lead us in a couple verses of that song. Uh, if this morning, if you need prayer, you wanna talk to someone more about what it looks like to follow Jesus, then we're gonna have people back in the prayer room and they'd love to talk to you about that or they'd love to pray with you if there's something you just really need prayer uh, with this morning. But as we sing, let's consider those questions and then I'll come back and, and close this out. Hey guys, thanks so much for checking us out online today. If you want more information about the church or things that's going on here, be sure to check out theriverCC.com or download our app and visit us there. Also, as we go through the Bible this year, we want to help keep you engaged on what's being read and talked about each week. To do that, we have a podcast called The Word This Week, which will recap each week's readings as well as have special guests who will talk about what God showed them that week. So be sure to check that out on all podcast streaming platforms. And again, thanks so much for checking us out online.